I'm Will Giesland with Giesland Group, and you're listening to The Real Talk Podcast. What's going on, guys? Thank you always for listening. Welcome to another episode of Real Talk. Today, I'm with my good friend, Will Giesland, CPA, uh, Will Giesland of the Giesland Group. Will was our first corporate accountant, actually, at Compass, formerly known as Urban Compass, Will and I connected in the summer of 2014 back at our Union Square office, where then we were only maybe 25, 30 brokers. Uh, Leonard Steinberg had just joined, Kyle Blackman had just joined, kind of a very still small operation. And we probably had a few dozen staff members. Uh, I think Will was the first official accountant for the company. And we probably had maybe two dozen um, engineers and a couple of business people. Prior to joining, joining forces at Urban Compass, Will worked at Urban Young for two years honing skills as a number cruncher. Will hails from Atlanta, Georgia, uh, where he was a, uh, uh, he was also an ex-resident of the Warren House Condominium in Murray Hill, New York City. Will ran the New York City Marathon, and he's also a proud alumni of the Auburn and the Auburn Tigers football program. Uh, go Jason Campbell, who actually is, was an ex-Washington uh, Redskin or the Washington football team quarterback. Football team. Football team of Auburn. Uh, you guys are playing Ole Miss Saturday, uh, and I guess haven't yet played Alabama and LSU in this delayed, weird uh, COVID season. But in any event, uh, well, thank you for your time, and uh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Talk. I appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. The, uh, the one thing that you left off in my bio, though, and the thing I'm probably most proud of is uh, I was the inaugural champion of the Urban Compass Fantasy Football League. So, you know. <laughs> My, my strongest legacy. You were. And we were really competitive back then. We had so many players that we had so many teams that wanted to play. And uh, yes, you, you are, you were, you are the champion and we're the champion. And you will hold that title as long as the Urban Compass slash Compass Football League is, uh, is present. And it has been still. So right. it's going strong. So right. we're in our seventh year going strong. Uh, what else? Oh, yeah. You are also, I believe you're also uh, the championship of the uh, Compass Cornhall Tournament, no? Uh, if I remember correctly, we made a strong showing, but I, I can't claim the championship on that one. I, uh, my, my, you made a strong showing. My skills left me. At the semifinals, it was, it was you and your teammate versus Danielle on my team and Brian Renzenbrink. Yes, and, and she still remembers getting beat by you, and so she has a sour. Uh, she has a sour. Right. I was I was actually talking about you last week. I was like, oh, I'm going to have Will on the podcast, and uh, you, know, do you remember him? She's like, Yes, very much. I, me- I remember him when he beat me at uh, cornhole, and that's uh, a, a definitely a sour point of uh, Danielle's uh, career here. At okay. Well, I'm, I'm you know I'm glad she's not holding it against me anymore, and she's moved on. <laughs> I don't know if she's moved on. She remembers, but yes, maybe perhaps she has moved on. <laughs> And anyway, listen, Will, I, I definitely appreciate your time. You know, we're, we're doing this podcast with you because uh, a, a few things. You know, you're, you came into my mind when it's a weird time. You know, Trump uh, had his tax returns released after, you know, the fourth year of his presidency. And the media jumped on him. And obviously, understandably, he paid $750. Very ambiguous number for a quote-unquote billionaire. So... Uh, you know, having uh, operating a business myself, along with obviously brokers, we're all independent contractors. We have to do our own accounting systems, and we all operate under LLC or S Corp or 1099. And I, I figured it's a good time to jump on, not to talk politics. The full disclosure: I'm not here to 
discuss, you know, if we're pro-Trump or Biden, and this is not that type of episode, but we're here to discuss kind of the bird's eye view of accounting practices that are common for real estate developers, real estate owners and operators, as well as, you know, what are the common misconceptions that people who earn a salary, they may not be aware of what, you know, when the media blasts companies like Amazon or, uh, you know, Twitter, Facebook or, or Google, you know, they're not paying quote unquote federal taxes. Uh, I think it's, it's, there's so much of that talk of taxes and big companies not paying them, whether it's Trump again, or big startups, or even, you know, I'm, I'm sure Uber, they all have very similar tax uh, implications and obligations and practices and how it relates to them not paying federal income tax. I think it's a great time for someone like you to come on and discuss and clarify, you know, what is actually behind these uh, notions and what the common misconceptions may be. So, sure. you know, let, let's first talk about, you know, just the general analysis of Trump's taxes. You know, why did he only pay $750? And maybe the fact that media outlets can just say on Twitter, he only paid $750. Well, I'm sure... As a, as a business owner myself and you auditing companies and individuals uh, for, for a living, you could probably break that down into more of a uh, analytical look and say, well, actually, sure. that actually may not be true. Sure, absolutely. Well, you know, and the first thing I'll, I'll tell you is, uh, you know, like I said, this, I, I, you, know, you can love the guy, you can hate the guy. You know, I am speaking about this purely from a, from a, a, a functional standpoint of, how you know how taxes work and, and what you would expect to see here. And um, you know, the first thing I'll tell you is uh, you're going to be hard pressed to find many individuals in the United States that are going to have a more complex tax return than Donald Trump does. Because sure. he, as an individual, he owns a lot of assets himself, or he is a he has a lot of income that comes from partnerships or uh, single member LLCs that go directly to his tax return. So I mean, his return is thousands and thousands and thousands of pages long. So you have the idea of, um, you know, that gives you a little bit more understanding of how complicated and complex it is. Uh, when in reality, what the public is seeing is really just the first page of a tax return. And you know, I could show you the first page of a tax return of someone that has a pretty simple situation. And you probably will not be able to get a lot of insight, good or bad, into what that person's personal wealth is, what their cash flow situation is, any of those things. And then when you add in the factor of a uh, real estate developer, anyone in real estate, it gets just a little bit, even, even a little bit more complex because when I, when I deal with someone that is in, in as a real estate developer, as a real estate holder and an investor, uh, it is not uncommon to see wild swings in income or law and in, in losses, mainly from, uh, you know, depreciation, uh, you know, various, uh, various losses from also just from, you know, whether it's a um, you know, depreciation or um, other adjusting items that are non-cash that uh, you'd expect to see for an individual. And then they may, you know, say they've owned a building for a long time, they've grown out of depreciation. All of a sudden, even though it's going to be cash flowing the exact same, they could, they could see a wild swing in income on a tax basis because they've run out of depreciation. Um, you've got a couple of those things you do have uh, other factors to consider with what the culmination of someone's business holdings are. But then the other thing that people, you know, you see that number, you see Donald Trump's personal tax return, and Donald Trump is a business. 
he right. he is 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 a is a uh, is the sum of all of these businesses, and you have to think about it differently from someone that is owning a privately held business versus what you would see from like an Amazon or a Tesla or any of these publicly traded companies. Mm-hmm. You know, publicly traded company, their goal and when they're out there and they're trying to show a profit, make money, generally speaking, make money and return value to shareholders. Mm-hmm. When you own a when you own a business privately, your number one goal, more than likely, depending on what you want to do long term, is do everything you can to avoid to pay tax, avoid paying taxes in a legal manner. Right. Um, you know, there, people want to say, was there or was there not uh, any sort of illegal activity that occurred? You, you just can't say. And, and no one can really attest to that just by looking at the first page of any given tax return. Right. Um, but, but you start having, um, you, you start getting into these situations where someone who owns a private business, their goal is tax avoidance. So that means what sort of depreciation can we run off? What other sort of capital assets can we purchase and get these major write-offs under the tax code that are, uh, you know, legal that will then reduce your taxable income? So, uh, you know, the the seven hundred fifty dollars didn't that didn't shock me. It didn't surprise me. Um, and he, what people are taking into account is an organization, uh, you know, a real estate organization is paying tax in a lot of different ways. They're paying tons of property taxes. They're right. going to be paying. Uh, payroll taxes associated right. with the people that work for them, right. um, you know, and then there's and you do have the the trickle down tax effects of all the other people that you're paying. Um, right. So it's a little more nuanced than just saying, "Oh, well, he didn't pay taxes. Okay. He didn't pay federal income tax." But there were a lot of other taxes that are associated there. Um, and you know, it is not it is it is neither good, bad, nor indifferent. It's really just you know, it's uh, it's more of an issue of these are the rules, and and you know, more than likely they were playing by the rules uh, and they're just leaning into those rules. And that's why he probably paid millions and millions of dollars to have his tax return done by a, a well-respected uh, you know, CPA firm. Um, there, there, there's, there's always a reasonable explanation on any taxpayer on how they got to their income, but it all depends on the CPA or the CPA firm that that person hires to really show how they got to that income. Is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm sure you see this as a, as a broker dealing with people, especially if you've got a business owner that wants to uh, purchase a piece of real estate and they need it financed too. The underwriting for a business owner is significantly m- more nuanced in, yeah. in my experience than yeah. someone who is just a W-2 employee because you have to prove that that's really their income. Is their income going to stay the same year over year? Uh, you know, not factoring in that they could have owned this business for 25 years and they put off a ton of cash every single year because also they might show that return that shows, oh, I had zero taxable income for the year. Um, You know, let's just, let's, let's disregard the fact that they've got $10 million in cash sitting in a bank account. That's right. As a business owner, one of my biggest nightmares, especially as a real estate broker representing buyers for co-ops where they have to be board approved is a independent contractor or business owner buyer who wants to buy this co-op for their family or for themselves, whatever, but they own six warehouses with six different LLCs and Mm -hmm. they each have varying degrees of income, but they also don't necessarily report a personal income. And if they do, it's very, very minuscule, a personal Mm -hmm. tax income. So it just seems to be... You know, it's easy for the media and not, again, this is not a pro-Trump or pro-Biden 
form by any means, but to any business owner's defense, it is easy for a New York Times to jump on Twitter or any, any, any opposing political party to jump on Twitter or Facebook with 280 characters or whatever it may be and, and criticize somebody by saying this business owner paid $300, $500, in taxes. It's very subjective of objective, isn't that right? Absolutely. Uh, and, and you know, it is, like I said, it, 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 you're not going to say it's, it's either good or bad. And some people will tell you it's, that's great. Some people will tell you it's bad. I'm just saying, you know, the, these are the rules of the game and this is the way that people are, are playing. And if you set the set, if you set the rules up a certain way and you know, I, I can't fault someone for following, leaning into the rules and the ability uh, that they have to, make the most of those rules. Mm -hmm. um, you know, everyone is looking for an advantage, however they can get it. Um, and as long as it's a legal advantage, uh, legal advantage, you know, more power to you. I, I you know, that's, um, you know, if, if you're not looking to sell something and show that you've got a huge profit, uh, you know, you would be hard pressed to find many business owners that will tell you, I, you know, I want to pay the most in taxes I can, because that just means they're leaving the money on the table, especially as they want to continue to grow their business you know, build something for their family, do those things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this is a conversation I have with clients that, that have a business that could do, that could have $50,000 in revenue or be a client that does 10, 20, $30 million in revenue. Sure. The, the, the challenges are not that different. You just do them at a different scale. Got it. Got it. Uh, mm -hmm. You said previously uh, when we talked, you said the you know, bulk of developers and landlords, they earn income through a schedule. Schedule, you can explain to them mm -hmm. in, in, right. in 30 seconds what that means, but uh, it's basically real estate related income. You know, how do real estate, in, in two to three minutes, how do real estate developers make money then? Make, what you have to think about from a tax perspective is cash flow versus taxable income sure. and real estate developers they may not they, they will spend especially in a city like new york could spend years and years spending money whether it was their own or through financing and through loans to fun. develop property mm -hmm. and so and they're making zero income on that right. so they're just building up all yeah, exactly nothing and then all of a sudden that first year the lights come on the tenants come in and they're getting that rent roll every single month and that's great, but they've got all of those costs that they have capitalized and are going to continue to appreciate over the, the life of, the, of that asset, whether it's a residential rental property or it's a commercial space and it's depreciated over uh, you know, anywhere between you know, 28 years and, and 40 years. And that will, on paper, drive down their, their net income on the business from a tax perspective. Right. So you guys sit there and say, someone could make a million dollars and these are arbitrary numbers, someone could make a million dollars in rent roll every single year, and they could have you know, the exact same amount in depreciation. That's a million dollars that they didn't spend that year, but they previously spent, or that's the value of the, the asset. And so from a tax perspective, they could end up with zero dollars in taxable income. It doesn't mean they're broke or they, they are losing money. It just means on paper, they're showing, uh, you know, they're showing a a tax basis income of, of you know, zero or negative numbers uh, or reduced numbers. So you tend to see that across any sort of rent, uh, rental activity, whether it's a residential, you know, you're renting out a condo as, a, as an investor or you own, um, you even own a, an apartment building or you own a warehouse. Mm -hmm. um, so 
So those are a lot of it is the expense that leads up to it. And then the, the non-cash expenses that you have over the life of the asset. Would you say, you know, talking about just how these real estate people earn money, if let's just say they're developing a condo, first time developer, would you say it's kind of like starting up a startup, like a tech company? Would you say it's similar? It definitely can be. That, yeah. I mean, that, that's for sure. I mean, yeah, a startup is just a fancy way of saying entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, so, and when we think startup and you think about, companies like an Uber or even a compass and how wildly successful the business has been over the life of it, of the business. Um, you know, they're, they're entrepreneurs just in a, in a order of magnitude larger than what an individual business owner or a real estate developer is doing. Right. So it, it's, it's it, like we said, it's the same set of challenges. It's just at a different scale. Um, and so they can continue to have, uh, issues and, uh, challenges and you learn on the fly, just like a startup. Sure. Um, a lot of it is trial and error. It's the same thing as I'm sure those first couple of years you were a broker, you would look back now and you would say, oh man, I just, I knew nothing. I <laughs> thought I was so wise and so smart. And then you had that first year that you, you know, you, uh, you had a, you had a good year and then you got that big tax bill. And yeah. like, like we'd said previously, you know, that's kind of the defining line. I think of when someone really comes an adult, it's not when you're 18, it's not <laughs> when you graduate from college it's not when you get married. It's the first year that you have a big tax bill. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, yeah. wow, this is, this is for real. Uncle Sam, so, this is shaking me down. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Uncle Sam will, 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 will always get theirs. He will always get theirs. So just to wrap up this section of Trump's taxes and how he paid $750, just to summarize it in one to two minutes for you. In conclusion, you would agree that he probably did not do anything illegal, but he definitely did some finagling of the numbers where it, he used the system that's created by the federal government to his advantage. Uh, yeah, exactly. And so I, you know, I can tell you, I can't tell you whether something illegal or legal happened. You, know, you, 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 you just can't tell. Um, but this is a perfect example of people don't, uh, People don't recognize the fact that the tax system is just like most other things is a political system. And people love the idea of like a flat tax and everyone paying X percent. But what what tax policy really is when it comes down to it is a carrot or a stick that incentivizes people into certain actions. And so, you know, you you move seven and a half, eight million people or whatever New York City's population is now and people keep pouring in. Do you need people to build buildings for them to, to work, to live, to shop and enjoy themselves? And if you don't have certain tax incentives for them to do those things, chances are a lot of those developers won't do it because it's going to cost them so much money up front. They're never get out, going to get out of that hole. And, and, and you could say that's a good thing or it's a bad thing, but it is creating, it is motivating action that is allowing people that is serving a lot of other people. And, and that's all tax policy is. Um, you know, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it is uh, addictive. Like, sure. you know, there's definitely taxes out there that are you know, there to punish certain people or certain states. 100%. Um, but, but yeah, so, so you know, it is a matter of understanding the rules and, and he's got a team around him that help, under, to help translate the rules of the game and uh, do their best to uh, offset that. And you know, that that's how I would interpret it. Um, you know, and then you've got other people that will never pay taxes because you know, they could, they could be 
bad business owners and stuff, but just based off of profession, that's, that's how I would have read um, any real estate developers taxes and tax return wouldn't have surprised me to see that. Sure. Sure. So well, let's so shift a little bit. You'll pivot. pivot. No, you previously said, previous said tax evasion is bad. Tax avoidance is good. Yes. We have yeah. big politicians yeah. these days that go on, again, like a Twitter platform. There's only so many words on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Or so many words can be typed in on a Facebook post or, a, or an Instagram post. But you know, they love to blast a company like Amazon or Tesla as they, quote, quote, unquote, they pay no federal income tax. Two years ago, when Amazon wanted to come to New York City to establish HQ2 and LIC, AOC blasted Amazon on the New York Post and all over media saying, why do we want a company that pays no tax? How do we benefit? And I just felt like, not, not a dig on her or any politician, but I think just people in general need to understand that if you're on salary, you, you don't really think about this. You know, people that are on salary, they, they just get everything deducted, mm -hmm. payroll, unemployment, federal, state, city, right. city, MTA tax. It gets all deducted. They don't really think about it, but they need to understand and have a better educated, start saying more educated statements on taxes of why they don't pay federal income tax and why that's legal and, mm -hmm. and maybe if media was more educated, then the people themselves understand, okay, they don't pay federal income tax, but they also are beneficial in other ways, or they also pay taxes in other mm -hmm. ways. So maybe you, could, maybe you could kind of go over that on why, first and foremost, Amazon doesn't sure. pay federal taxes and Absolutely. why, you know, and how maybe, you know, that could have benefited New York, maybe not benefited New York City, who knows? Maybe, maybe touch on mm -hmm. that. Well, you threw a lot at me there, Talk. Uh, <laughs> the, there's a lot of different pieces that go into it. And, you know, if you can find someone that can boil down tax policy and the way things work in 280 characters, uh, let me know because I'd love to hire them. And, or, you know, or I'd love to go work for them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But um, it, is, it is one of those things that the federal tax system is so large and so complex and it's so different from structure to structure, whether it's an individual, a business, a nonprofit, all of these different things, or the different types of structures, whether it's a C-Corp, it's an S-Corp, it's a partnership, uh, all of these different things. It's, it's so nuanced and complex across the board. And if there's one thing that, you know, I think we can all agree on is a lot of the conversation that we've, that we have today is uh, lacking in nuance. And so we can't have people, people don't want to spend the time to think about these things and they just want to have a quick that's you know black and white that's good that's bad they're in they're out yes, yes and no, that sort of situation yes and so when we start dealing with tax policy especially when we start dealing around you know multi-billion and trillion dollar businesses you want to uh you want to you want to cast dispersion on them and, and you know no one is a saint and and there is there you know there's these big companies that do good things they do bad things and um you know, to a certain degree, when we talk about why don't they pay federal tax, uh, some of them like Amazon on some years may not pay any tax at all. Uh, it, it, you know, that, that argument is kind of one of the same things that we talk about with like HQ2 coming to New York City. Um, we, we could, the federal government could tax more on, uh, on Amazon or any of these multinational corporations uh, if they wanted to, but it's going to drive businesses out because there are other 
com- countries around the world that have a, be- a better or, you know, as a cheaper tax system. And in the same vein, when you have these huge businesses that want to put a facility somewhere around the country, certain states have certain tax systems that are more advantageous to a business. And so if we want to get rid of that, you know, this would have to basically be every state would have to say, or every country would have to say, let's all just agree to the same system or let's stop competing against each other. And that's just not going to happen. So, you know, so they are for good or bad are using those systems to play a little bit against each other, especially on the state level with like the HQ2 thing. But, um, you know, they are paying taxes somewhere in some manner a lot of the time. Um, but also what people don't take into effect is these large startups, whether it's Amazon or even like an Uber now, think about the millions and millions and billions of dollars they've lost over the life of their uh, startup. You can have, uh, you'll have a lost carry forward that can, that can work for years, which means if you don't have, you didn't pay tax this year and you lost a bunch of money, the next year, it can, that, that loss can help offset the income that you have in this year. Mm-hmm. So if you lose billions and billions of dollars for several years to get to scale, you could have a, a you, know, you could have a deferred tax asset that's going to pay off for years in the road, years down the road. Um, so so you know it is, it's difficult I think for people that that don't own a business, uh, or or just or not don't do this for a living. And, you know same reasons like I, you know I talk to a doctor sometimes I just got to let a doctor I just got to trust a doctor and say you know what you're doing that's what you're here for. Um, it's, it's a little more complicated than it is. Like some people might say, oh, it shouldn't be complicated. Same way you might say for a doctor, well, it shouldn't be that complicated. Or, you know, to, to, to you to specifically, specifically with a real estate agent, people sit there and say, oh, this doesn't seem that hard what you do. And then it's like when you had Rory on for the last episode and, and he was talking about, well, here's the 15 things that you need to do before we even get into the weeds. I and I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do that. Yeah, I don't want to do that. Yeah, exactly. Great, exactly. great, great quote from my previous episode with Rory Gall. Right, exactly. Check out the last episode too. <laughs> Subscribe above. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it's 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 really basically the moral of the story is it's so hard to digest. Somebody like AOC, people look up to her, right? And but when she goes on a Twitter rant of being anti-business and anti the system and anti the man, and she says. We don't want Amazon here because they don't pay corporate taxes. But what she maybe she probably recognizes this, maybe just against her political agenda. Who knows? But I mean, can can, can you tell me if this is true or false? Had Amazon HQ two did come to New York City, I mean, how many millions and millions of dollars in payroll payroll taxes would the state of New York benefited from? Oh, the the, the state and the city uh, would have paid would have gotten. Uh, a ton of taxes. You have occupancy tax for the, the office space that they would build. You, you have the you know the the millions or billions of dollars that they were going to pay in development to uh, you know good union jobs in, in the city right. and to right. developers that were then going to in turn pay payroll taxes. So right. there was a lot of money that was going to be had there. Um, a lot of payroll. I, I certainly, I, I, I certainly, I certainly, yeah. Anyway, say that again. A, a lot of payroll tax, basically, with, whether it's sure. engineers or union jobs. Or just building management, property mm-hmm. management, property operation, all of sure. those payroll taxes the city and state basically missed out on. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and certainly, I think I, I can appreciate where someone has a stance like that, and they're not totally wrong. I, I get it from, especially from a knee jerk reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do have to take a kind of a thirty thousand foot level, and you really see the board. 
And the, the question is, you know, what's for the, what can we do to, to maximize from a tax policy? And, and when you do these things is what can you do to get the, the greatest good for the most amount of people from a, from a government perspective? Sure. And if that means giving away billions of tax dollars in tax breaks and incentives to an organization to bring other things in, your anticipation is it's going to ultimately help provide more revenue somewhere else down the road through other uh, you know, other, uh, other income generating operations, uh, within the state. So, and, and that's where it comes into more of a economic debate. And, and there's, there's certainly times that they have, they being the government, not New York, New York city, but anywhere across the, the country, we certainly have had it here in Atlanta where the incentives were just too strong. They made it too lucrative for them. And, and it just, they didn't get enough back. Um, cause you see, there's a situation with the with, I believe it was um, it was a technology company in Wisconsin that was coming over from Asia, and they promised to bring in thousands of jobs. And then they downplayed, they down, they scaled down the facility they were going to build, and so it went from a billion dollar project to a hundred million dollar project. And now there's only a couple hundred people employed. So the state, the state clawed back the tax breaks they gave them. They were going to give them millions and millions of dollars of tax breaks, sure. and the company tried to um, company tried to continue to claim those, and the state said. Not today, and so they are. Uh, they took they took those back and said you didn't hold up your end of the deal, which is great. And if that's the way it works, that's 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 great. But um, you know, it's just a tax policy. It's a carrot and stick. And how do you motivate people to act? Just the same way that we do it with individuals. It's just when you're an individual and you're just a, and you are a W two employee who's got a pretty basic setup. When you have less on the table from uh, options and technicalities, you have less wiggle room and options to think strategically about your finances and your tax, your tax situation. Whereas you become a multinational corporation or, or a, you know, a federal government, you've got a lot more wiggle room and a lot more options to get creative and do things and think strategically today, you know, 18 months down the road and 10 years down the road. Um, and, and so they are not, um, certainly there are bad actors out there. There are bad actors that are, that are, you know, individuals too. Um, but you've just got a lot of policy out there that then uh, drives the action of, of what I would consider to be a large portion of the population doing the right thing. Um, so we just don't want to get into a throwing the baby out with the bathwater kind of situation. Correct. Yeah. I mean, basically, in short summary, you're saying people get hung up on multinational corporations, they get hung up on farmers, mm-hmm. they get hung up on big, big tech. But these organizations mm-hmm. don't live and die by the rules that a salaried individual sure. lives on. Right. right. Well, it, it, but and you see politicians, you know, that are speaking to the people and they want to be outraged and shake their fists sky and right. do all this stuff. And, and you know, they, I, I think I don't think, you know, I'm sure they have ulterior motives. That's, you know, OK, so be it. But a lot of that, too, is, um, you know, you can they can appease, uh, you know, a Jeff Bezos and an Amazon. But but, uh, you know, they live in a district in Queens and. You know, if Jeff Bezos lived there, you know, he gets just as many votes as those people in Queens. So you're more interested in making sure that they're all on your side, supporting your cause. So, um, you know, there, there, there's definitely some political motivation in there as well. No one definitely changes if Bezos lived in Queens. <laughs> yeah. That's for sure. Uh, all right. Well, so listen, I, I know you're a busy guy, so we want to jump on to the next topic very quickly. So a lot of our listeners are real estate professionals. They're brokers. And mm-hmm. The number one thing, you know, no matter what stage we are in a broker's career or a small business owner's career, 
the challenge has always been record keeping or bookkeeping for the for I guess mm-hmm. call it. You get to the end of the year and you, I'm running my business and get that big fat 1099 at the end of the year. And you, you know, you spent the broker or the small business spent all this money in marketing, transportation, entertainment, meals, uh, memberships, uh, coaching, training, uh, your staff, all these things. Independent contractors, they always get in trouble at the end of the year trying to find their expenses. They try to get, they try to categorize expenses. They want to try to manage their financials, but they seem to always get hit with a big tax bill. It's no secret that small businesses and brokers do get audited by the IRS quite often. So tell me, what are the biggest challenges as independent contractors or small businesses, people like us, what what are the hurdles that we have to go through in order to make sure that we're not paying out money like we're buying multiple Benzes and Lexuses uh, by the time tax, tax season comes in? Right. Well, the, the, you know, the, the first thing is, you know, uh, small mistakes tend to make small problems. Big mistakes tend to make big problems. Mm-hmm. So I, I always tell people, you know, whether you're a broker or you're starting a you know, delivery business or whatever the business and operation is, is try and set the foundation correctly when you're small, because the further you get along, the more difficult it's going to be to change things, to make corrections. Uh, and, and just, you know, make sure you're moving in the, in the, in the right direction. Sure. So we have got, uh, I always tell people, like we talked about, the, the number one thing is keep really good records. But, you know, is the, that's, a, that's like a 1A and then a 1B, I'd say, uh, just like when you're a broker and you need to have access to, you need good handymen, you need closing attorneys, you need the lenders, you need a Rolodex of people, you need a team of people that you can call on. When you're a business owner or you're a broker, you also need your own team, and that's going to be uh, a financial advisor, a, a good CPA and tax advisor, a, an attorney. And so these are people that can help you along the way. And the best thing you can do is, one, keep really good records, and two, educate yourself and ask a lot of questions along the way. Because you, taxes, tax planning can be like healthcare. And in the sense of when it comes to healthcare, you can either be proactive and try and stop a problem from occurring, or you can be reactive and only deal with something after you've already gotten sick or there is an issue. So, you know, talk, if you came to me in you know, January 15th of next year to rehash what happened in 2020, uh, you know, the ox is already in the ditch. We can't do, uh, we can't do a lot for something that's already happened in the past. But if you and I have a conversation in July, checking in on how operations are going, what's the year looking like, we can see what you're doing. We can kind of project out what we think your, your tax balance might look like. And we can then kind of move those, those dials to say, do we need to spend more money for things that you actually need, whether it's buying more laptops or bringing on another member to your team uh, that will help keep your taxable income down and help you grow your income over the years. Uh, or we just say, we're not making as much money. We need to dial things back. We can do kind of a good checkup on the business. Um, and then you do it again. And then I would say, do it again. If you know about this time every year, check in with your, your team and let them know where you're at and keep game planning, especially with you know, what's coming up on the horizon. If there's, you know, there could be a change in the administration, there could be continued evolution of tax laws, which is there's always changes in tax laws. that keep, keeps me employed. Uh, you, know, you need to be on top of those things. And then as you continue to grow your business, the things that I would be focused on 
is you're going to be worried about growing your team, what sort of corporate structure you're going to be, because once you grow that team, you're going to need payroll. Sure. That brings a whole other situation where you're going to have a payroll service, you're going to have payroll taxes. And at that point, you need to sit there and say, okay, I've been a, I've been a single member LLC, or I have just been paid directly to me as an individual. It's all going to my personal, my, my 1040, my individual tax return. But as you continue to grow and you continue to make more money and, and be more successful, you cross a line where you can make a jump from being a single member LLC into being an S corp and tax differently. Right. And that's that point you can start paying less in, uh, in self-employment taxes. Cause that's what really gets people is, is they pay double. You don't realize it until you, what? You get paid double. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're, you don't realize when you get, when you're on a W2, you get, you see all those taxes come out and you're trying to figure out who this FICA person is and why are they so mean? But <laughs> When you start your own business, all of a sudden, what you realize is there's two sides of that equation. Yeah. And when you're the business owner, you're paying the employee side and the employer side. So if you can make the jump to an S corp, you can actually reduce a portion of those employer taxes. Uh, and so, so there's a benefit to do those sorts of things. And I think there are a lot of people that they don't have a good team around them or they are not educated on these things. So they can sit there and end up leaving thousands and thousands of dollars on the table just because they were unaware of, of you know, tax structures and tax maneuvers that are you know, completely legal and available to them that uh, could be extremely advantageous. And it's just literally filling out a form. That's all you got to do. Right. And so there's situations like that. Um, and then as you continue to do that, it's just that constant revision to your tax planning and being aware of what your goals are and how you want to get there. Um, and, and, you know, just, just being open-minded to, opportunities that come your way, uh, you know, cause I am like, what I do for a living is I do a lot of that planning piece and I'm here to help you reach your goals. And then also a portion of that is mitigating taxes, reducing taxes wherever we can, or at least eliminating the surprise for you. I do not work in the surprise business. I am here to make sure if you're going to owe a big check at the end of the year, we at least want it. We want you to know it's coming so you can be prepared for it. I'll say that again. I'm not in the surprise business. And exactly. So and, I, I don't work in the surprise business because I know you don't like surprises as a client and as a taxpayer. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to do everything I can. And your tax preparer and your, your tax advisor should be doing everything they can to help you avoid any unnecessary taxes. But then also, you know, I always tell people paying taxes generally also is a sign that you, you've been successful. So it is not the worst thing in the world. No one wants to pay more than their fair share, but you know, if you're going to owe a big tax bill at the end of the year, I don't want to have to call you on April 15th and say, hey, you need to write a check for $250,000. No one likes that. No one likes that conversation. I don't care how much money you make. That That's not a conversation oh, I enjoy. Oh, yeah. I, I don't enjoy that conversation and you don't enjoy it because you've got to write the check. That could ruin somebody's month. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So so we're here to, we're here to, to, to avoid surprises. You know, a couple of quick questions, like rapid fire questions as a broker myself and uh, maybe sure. business owners that are, are operating under uh, either a single, um, maybe an LLC, S Corp, or just 1099. Mm -hmm. if, if a business earns, for example, 100K, uh, the individual takes home a modest salary of 40K through their, you know, just for themselves. 
there's 60, 60K surplus. And they write off 50K, whether it's marketing and all that, then they pay taxes on that last remaining 10K. Is that cost to get audited immediately by the government? You know, like every good tax question, the answer is it depends. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, you can't, you know, there, there, you know, there's no, uh, there's no bright line on what anything looks like. Um, uh, you know, anyone that's, there's certain professions I would imagine that also just get, get a little bit more of a, a quick trigger um, because there are certain people that will tend to be a little more egregious in their expenses. Well, for um, example, give know. me an example, funny money. Break it down. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I've had someone that tried to tell me they own a, uh, you know, they, they own a trucking company and yeah. they bought a, and they bought a $75,000 boat for their lake house and they bought it and they said it was a, they tried to run it through as a vehicle. And <laughs> it is a vehicle. You know, right? <laughs> if you if you saw, if you saw $75,000 by itself on a, on an asset sheet for a vehicle for a trucking company, that doesn't look that weird until you look at the name of it. And it's like the Bassmaster 3,500 or something. <laughs> and so you have to, you, you got to make the call and you have, and, and you have to tell them, you know, this is not, this is a very poor decision. You do not want to do this. Yes. Um, you know, it's, you know, and, and there are always, some people have good reasons and they may be valid reasons. Then you've got other people that just try and throw everything at it. Um, but, you know, it's kind of one of those things, you know, it doesn't take a tax professional to look at some of these things and say, you know, that just, that doesn't smell right. So, so it's a, you'll, you'll know it when you see it, but I mean, you've seen, I've seen stuff like that. I've seen, uh, you know, you'd see someone's, someone might try and run through a bachelor party mm-hmm. as a business expense and, and say, oh, it was, oh, it's client development and all this other stuff. Ah. Um, <laughs> and, but, and, but, and then someone else, and, and someone may be evasive about why, what it is. And then you, you just have to tell them if you, you know, if you get audited, you have to be able to provide the support for these things. And you're the one that is signing the tax return. Like, um, you know, you're telling me that it's correct and it's accurate to your knowledge. And, you know, it, it still comes back to you as an individual. So, you know, don't get, you know, don't get greedy. So, I, I mean, I could throw a bunch of, I could throw a bunch of country phrases at you, but I don't know if they would land with, uh, with, with our, with our audience. So, you know, you can get, you can get greedy. Um, you know, they, they always said, you know, hogs get fat and, and, uh, pigs or pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. And so, you know, you, you can be a little, you can be smart and, and spend your money where you need to, but don't get too greedy because it'll it'll get you in the end. Pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. Don't be too greedy. There you go. You can recognize that from Northern Virginia, I'm sure. Very good. I like that. It's a very, you know, you are a very good old man, just like Rob Repton. Maybe that's why you guys uh, get along. So <laughs> yeah, um, I always like that about Robert. Very, very big quote guy. Now, just one more question, I, I guess, rapid fire. If somebody, business owner, broker, makes 100 grand and they just write off 90 grand on business, whether it's meals, basically they're writing off their entire money. In summary, to you, the question is, that's a grounds for probably getting audited pretty quickly. Uh, like I said, it depends. It's <laughs> going to be, if, if someone, it's not unreasonable for someone, especially if they're growing a business, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, you get, you've seen it with being, especially with being a broker, you got to spend money to make money. And especially if you're in those early years and you're just trying to grow, you're more concerned about pumping money back into your business and doing things that are going to help generate value for you and for your clients, not necessarily today, but down the road, you're planting seed. So you can, so you can harvest later. 
Correct. Okay. And, uh, and, and so if I see someone, especially you know, in a brokerage or it's just a business owner, those sure. first couple of years, if they make no money, they lose a little bit of money. I'm not terribly concerned. Um, I, I hope over a, the course of a couple of years, we're going to see that income grow. And there's a true, uh, you know, there's a true profit motive there because sometimes you will see people that want to run a schedule C uh, on their personal return. And it's going to, sh- it's going to lose money every single year. And if you do that for you know five, 10 years, the IRS is going to say, Hey, this is odd looking and they may come after you. But um, you know, it, one year of losing money, two years of like that number, tick, you know, ticking up a little bit sure. is not the end of the world. And sure. I wouldn't, I'm not sitting there saying I'd be, I'd be sweating bullets staying up at night that the IRS is doing it. But also what I'll tell you is, you know, if you sincerely believe what you're doing is is useful and is right, you shouldn't lose any sleep over it anyway. Of course, that makes sense. I, I must say, my first year I made maybe eight thousand dollars in real estate, maybe less, maybe six or seven thousand dollars just in real estate. I, I had a second job, but I at the when April fifteenth came around, I probably had five hundred bucks in my bank account, and my tax bill was four grand. I was losing sleep. I was losing a lot of sleep. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Not stress to our listeners. If you are in the individual broker or a broker with an LLC or S Corp, I cannot stress the importance of having a great CPA on your team, whether you pay them as a retainer on a monthly basis or you just let them help you out with your taxes or you meet with them quarterly. I cannot stress the importance of having a professional tax advisor on your side representing your interests because, my goodness, it we are not salaried employees and our taxes can get very complicated. Once I started exactly. to pay out staff, once I started paying out staff and myself, it has become, the taxes have become completely uh, 100% harder for any individual to understand. Exactly. Well, talk, you, you're not an individual anymore. You're a business. So, yes. so and, and just like we've said throughout this entire podcast is once you're a business, life gets a lot more complicated. Like it's significantly more complicated. The last section that I want to talk with you, and I think this is probably one of the more anticipated sections for our listeners, is equity. In a privately held company, let's just say in a tech startup, for example, a company like Compass, a lot of employees and brokers, when they get recruited, they receive shares of the company. They receive equity, whether it's in form of RSUs, or it, or something else, like maybe founder's equity, whatever it may be, kind of, kind of break it down for us. How do you look at that equity and how, from a tax standpoint, you know, how does everything, how does that all work? Whether it's RSUs and strike price and the strike price is very low, very high, the current valuation, the future valuation. Tell me how that works from a tax standpoint. So it depends on what sort of equity you've got. So you're gonna be granted, you could be granted options, and then you could be granted restricted stock units. Uh, you know, there's a couple of different types of options. You've got incentive stock options, which are only for people that are employees of a business. Mm-hmm. Then you have non-qualified stock options, which are, are uh, you know, NSOs, which that's going to be someone that could be an employee. And it, it's going to be anyone that, or it could be anyone that is not a direct employee of a business, like a 1099 contractor that happens to work for a business. Sure. Um, and so those are taxed in two different ways. Uh, and we'll talk about our issues. They're, they're easier and we'll deal with that at the end. But an incentive stock option, you're going to, let's say you're going to have your strike price. Let's say it's $5 and the fair market value of the share, whether it's publicly traded or not, is 
$9. You've got that $4 gain there yeah. that's, that's built in. Mm -hmm. And if you have an incentive stock option, there is, no, there is typically not going to be a taxable event from traditional income tax on that $4 spread and that value, that $4, I'd call it phantom income that you have. Uh, you may pick up some alternative minimum tax, and that is a whole other ballgame that that's what I do a lot with. I deal a lot with people in the, in the equity in the equity world, the stock option world to help them forecast these things and figure out what their what the damage is going to be. Um, but that's a whole other conversation that we could spend an hour on. Okay. Uh, you could potentially have some tax some tax issues there if you have incentive stock options and you've got enough of them. Um, it's a lot easier. It's a lot less damaging now than it was before the uh, new tax law in 2018. But then your other type, which is probably more relevant for a lot of people listening to this podcast, could be the NSOs and non-qualified stock options. Okay. So back with that same example of a strike price of $5 and a um, fair market value of $9, you're going to pay that $5 for that. You're going to exercise that option for $5. It's going to give you one share that is worth $9. That $4 spread, that value is actually considered, instead of considered phantom income, it is ordinary income. So that is going to go straight to the front page of your tax return. Sure. So there is no, there's not a lot of maneuvering on that one. It's just ordinary income. And if you were a employee of a company and you exercised NSOs like that, chances are they're going to just tack it right onto your W-2. They will do some extra withholdings. They make, make your life a little bit easier. Sure. But if you have a, if you, know, if you are independent of a company and you exercise those shares and you're not careful, you could be in for a world of hurt at the end of the year. So it's really important when you have these these or when you start thinking about your equity, having a conversation with a professional who does this, one, to make you to educate you, but two, let's get strategic with it. Because I, I had a conversation with someone this morning that has equity in a publicly traded company. They've got all of these options out there. And here we are in Q4 of the end of the year, and they're, they're getting to the last bit of their equity um, to exercise. So we looked at the numbers and the, because of the timing and where they are, it makes most sense for them to go ahead and say, let's exercise a little bit this year. And then let's wait till January of next year. Let's just push it in next year. And we won't have, we won't create a taxable event for this year or for next year. But if they had just gone out on their own and exercised it today, they were looking at a you know, $20,000, tax bill on top of the purchase of the shares that they, that they the options that they had at their uh, disposal. So you've got those two different pieces and it does get more complicated than that, but like from a very high level, that's, that's generally how it works. And then another, you know, another form of you know, alternative compensation that a lot of employees will get are restricted stock units. Um, and those are shares that you earn based off of your time of service with a company. Mm -hmm. And those are basically going to be after a year, you get a hundred shares and they're going to grant you those and they're given to you. And it's going to be, treated as income, whatever the value of those shares are, it's going to go onto your W-2 and you're going to have uh, withholdings and you'll have all these items that are baked in there and they'll be coded on Then Your tax professional will be able to see those things. Um, but relatively speaking, that's a whole lot easier because typically also say you were owed a hundred shares mm -hmm. and the taxes were equivalent to 12 of those. They're just going to give you 92 shares and they'll net off the taxes and that value will be added to your withheld from your tax uh, from your W-2 and life is neat and easy and clean and we move on. Um, and then hopefully you just sit there and watch, but you know, you've got that, you got your exercise component now, and then you've got your strategy of once there's, let's say the company's already public or is purchased, then you have to decide when do you want to share, when do you want to sell those shares? Because you want, you got to think about short-term capital gains or long-term capital gains. 
Um, and that could be a timing issue for one being over the year, but then also deciding, do I want to sell some this year and some next year, because I want to try and stay under a certain effective tax rate um, to try and save yourself a little bit more money. Um, you know, it's just, you start playing, you're playing, you move from checkers to chess at that point. And that's where you need to kind of have a really good game plan because it can, it can be a great thing, but it can also, you know, be a punch you in the face if you're not careful. Um, talk about strike price. A lot of these startups always talk about strike price. And, and I want you to go into, I know this is a whole other topic too, but talk about how your tax implications affect are affected based on how high or low your strike price is. Second part of the, of the question is when, let's just say brokers at Compass have equity, some of them may have equity and some of them may wanna exercise some now. Some, some of them don't wanna exercise at all. Some of them wanna exercise after, if the company goes IPO. What are the risks of doing an ex exercise before going public while the company is still in private? And what are the mm -hmm. pros and cons of doing that after it's public? Sure. Well, the biggest thing is, especially when you're talking about investing in a startup, and, and if you're exercising your options, you are essentially, you become an investor. And, you know, investing is, you know, I'm sure there, there's someone in the financial world that's going to really hate me for saying this, but, you know, investing is really a fancy word of saying gambling. It's just a little bit more informed, or hopefully it's more informed. Yeah. And, and so you get down there and you have a lot of factors that go into it. Uh, Ultimately, I think it depends on the, the quantity of options you're holding, the, the, the type of option that you're holding, and how far do we think we are away from, uh, how far away are we from a liquidity event, whether it's being public or being acquired. Um, and, but the biggest single driver on a lot of the decision is what's the spread between that strike price or the price that you pay for that option, for the right to buy that share, and what, the, what that share is actually worth. Right. Uh, and, and so Give me an example. the big thing... So, you know, the, the thinking about that $5 strike price and a $9 value, mm -hmm. uh, fair market value, sure. you've got, uh, from the incentive stock option perspective, your real risk is, I mean, you've got some alternative minimum tax that you may end up paying. You've got the actual money that you're going to spend to exercise those shares and buy them. And so you've got a, you have invested in this capital asset. And, uh, you know, let's, let's just play it out to the worst case scenario of that value goes to zero. Sure. And so you've got, if you're a, if you have not paid any other taxes on an incentive stock option, you've got your, uh, you've lost $5 and you're going to get a $5, uh, you know, capital loss on your tax return, which I wouldn't call it a benefit necessarily, but you do get an offset against any capital gain you have. So it'll at least help you in that regard. Okay. But then if you have a non-qualified stock option and you have bought that share at, you, you, you exercise at $5, it was worth $9 when you, when you uh, exercise and you picked up $4 of ordinary income that went to your, your 1040, and, you know, and then the next year, the stock goes to zero. Oh, that yeah. $4 you pay in tax, or, or the, the tax you paid associated with that $4 of income, uh, that's, that's gone. Oh, You're never gonna see that again. You paid all of that so, in taxes for $0 in value. Exactly, so you're, I mean, you're, you're, out your, you're out your $5, oh, and then you're out the tax, you get at least you get at least the deduction for the the capital loss associated with that. But um, I mean, the biggest risk is how far away are we from a liquidity event, and how wide a spread is it between your fair market value and the the strike price. Mm -hmm. So I mean, if you are sitting, if you're staring down the barrel of a of an IPO, and you were let's say you were a, a late stage employee, and your strike price is not that far off from fair market value, yeah, 
your risk is, is, is a little bit lower outside of the tangible cost of having to buy those shares. Um, but also at that point, if I had a client coming to me in that situation and they're late stage, and it's going to cost them a lot. I would argue, let's go ahead and wait and exercise after the IPO and let's see what the stock does yeah. um, because it could pop me. And that may, you know, it, there's a risk. It could cost you more money down the road, but there's also the potential that the IPO is a dud. And all of a sudden you realize, man, I'm really glad I didn't buy those shares. So Gamble. I would say any of that additional cost you've got is, is, you know, think of that more as almost like insurance is we, we played it a little more conservative. It cost us a little bit of money, but we also knew we knew what we were buying at that point. Right. And whether you're an employee or 1099, whether you have a non-qualified stock or not, I guess the summary is it is a huge risk to exercise early and then pay those tax implications, whether huge or not, you're still paying them. And then that's when the company yep. goes IPO and the shares go flat, or if it goes flat, you've essentially paid taxes for nothing. Exactly. Exactly. And, and so it is a, a question of, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze? Like, mm -hmm. it, are, are you going to put in, you know, like gambling, is it, a, are you comfortable if this, if the money you're going to spend, are you comfortable losing it or could you survive without it? Right. Uh, that should be, that should be a big, a big factor in your decision-making. And if someone's sitting there and the, the strike price is really, really low. Okay. I get it. And, and especially if you exercise very early on before the, the price went up, because if you were to come a startup and you had early round shares and, and those are early round options and they were at 50 cents an option, you want to exercise those really early because they're cheap and you could do it while the fair market value spread was really, really risk. low. Right. It's like exactly. So it's like all of a sudden, if they cost you, that could cost you, let's say five grand. And then you did it five years later, it could have cost you 50 grand. Sure. And, and you know, you'd be much more comfortable losing 50, you'd be much more comfortable losing $5,000. You know, granted, you could have been a 25 year old at a startup and you didn't have two pennies to rub together. So 5,000 felt a whole lot more. It's your rent but, money. Yeah, that's for sure. But exactly. So it's, you know, it, it is a lot, it's a myriad of factors. And, you know, that's, I spend a ton of time with people helping them understand that. And they kind of painting a picture of what their financial situation is because everyone's situation is different and everyone's got a different risk appetite or, um, you know, the ability to absorb that risk. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's, what's most important is, is understanding where you are and what you're willing to take. And, and then also being honest about your prospects on the company. Correct. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So how, once you go IPO, how confident are you that the company's valuations that were valued by private investors Sure. Is that going to sustain in the open market? I mean, I, you've seen flops. You've seen companies like Snapchat that had extraordinary offers to, to be right. bought from certain other large tech companies that went right. private, uh, that went public, and they kind of maybe not exceeded their expectations or met. Right. right. The, the question is, are you an employee at pets.com or are you an employee at Amazon? <laughs> As, you know, hey, you know, how, how do you feel about it? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, it, it's, it's a huge gamble. Uh, mm -hmm. So the, the listeners that are on this podcast that, that are loyal followers that have equity or that have stock options for a company mm -hmm. that may not necessarily be public right now, I would highly encourage you guys to listen to guys like Will, speak to guys like Will to make sure that you're not really pulling the trigger and exercising on something not knowing what your tax implications mean for that year or for your future, or, or even not knowing what, what that means once the company goes public. Because 
last thing you want to do is pay, spend a bunch of money of your own money that you could have used for something else or invested in something else, whatever it may be, only to find out that your tax bill is 5x or 10x more than what you thought you were at the end of the year because you spent that little bit of amount of money to exercise your equity. Exactly. We don't, we, like I said, we want to avoid surprises. If you want to be surprised, go watch a scary movie. <laughs> it is October. It's spooked over. That is right. There's tons of scary movie options right there. Uh, listen, I thank you so much. Uh, just a couple. And to end this episode, as a former, former New Yorker, what do you miss about New York City most? Oh, man. Uh, well, when I moved back to Atlanta, you know, there are certain things I loved here. Uh, there are certain things I definitely miss. I miss the, I love being able to walk everywhere that you take that for granted, really good mass transportation. And obviously I think these things are a little bit on pause right now, just because of the, the, the climate and the, and the environment. The but, uh, I, I miss that. I, I ride the subway. Uh, so I was like, I do. Miss, I, I miss that. Uh, you know, something simple. It probably, it's probably saved me a lot of money is, uh, you know, being able to get sushi delivered to your house any time of night, <laughs> any day of the week, uh, yeah, I called a, I tried to call a restaurant a while back. It was probably, it was probably one of the first couple of months back in Atlanta. And I asked them, I, it was, I couldn't find a place that was open after nine o'clock on a Sunday night. And I was just, I think I ended up eating a bowl of cereal standing over my sink, like a, like a, a real, real monster. Okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, I miss those. And I, I you know, it's, it's so much more, it's so much fun. New York's just, there's no place like New York. It's anyone that ever gets a chance to live there should 100% do it for at least a period of time. And the people that you will meet from all walks of life, it'll open your eyes to, you know, just different, different ways of life, different people, things that you're never going to get in a lot of other places in the country. Um, and so I, I think that's good. I think just to give you a really, really good perspective um, and the food. Oh, yes. And the food. Jerry, Jerry Seinfeld wrote a great rebuttal on uh, the LinkedIn post that went viral. I'm not sure if you heard of it, but it's New York City is dead. And there was a great rebuttal that Jerry Seinfeld wrote. Do you think New York City is dead? Uh, there's, there's, New York City is a constantly evolving living organism. I don't think it will ever die. Will it look different? Absolutely. But to say that, uh, you know, it, you know, Ro Rome is still Rome, and <laughs> New York will still be New York. Um, you know, I, I just think it may it may modify a little bit, but I always, I you know. If there's one thing I wouldn't bet against, it's uh, New York and the people that live there. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, what's what's going on with your uh, the your you ran the New York City Marathon? Obviously, the marathon mm -hmm. is actually it was supposed to be next week, next weekend. Right. It's canceled. Uh, what's going on with your running? Are you are you is there a marathon in uh, Georgia that you're going to be doing, or are you? No, no, I, I am. Yeah, I say I'm semi-retired from marathons. I've taken, I took a little time off. I got into triathlons. We were supposed to, my twin brother and I were supposed to do a half Ironman in Virginia uh -huh. back in May. Then it got pushed to June. Then it got canceled. They yeah. pushed it to another race in North Carolina. So I am, um, you know, tackling half Ironmans and, and thinking about some, some longer races. But Good. if I ever run a marathon again, it's going to be in New York City. That's for sure. George is a great place to train. It's a horrible place to run long-term, though. There's way too many hills. Deep humidity to build, not a good combination. Yeah, no, I bet, I bet. All right, yeah. well, 
Uh, listen, I know you're a busy guys. So I'm going to let you go. Uh, this has been a great podcast, a long podcast. For our listeners, please follow Will's company, the Geesling Group. His website is geeslinggroup.com, G-E-E-S-L-I-N, group.com. I will plug your website on our uh, on the podcast notes, in the respective notes. Right. And, uh, do you have any other uh, social media outlets that you want people to, to know about or follow you on? I mean, I'm on all the social media, you know, I try my best, but, uh, you know, if you want to see a lot of great pictures of my French bulldog, Walter, you can follow me on Instagram. Um, there you go. Go ahead and plug uh, your Instagram for the users. Yeah. Yeah. Instagram. I don't even know what it is. It's, uh, I think it's, it's, if you just, I'm there, there aren't a lot of Gieslins out there. If you search Will Gieslin, you'll find me. His Instagram. Find me on all the, all the active channels. I'm not on the TikTok though. I don't know what the TikTok is. It's okay. Don't worry about the TikTok. Yeah. You may follow Will on Instagram at W Geeslin at W G E E S L I N. There you have it, folks. Thank you, Will, for coming on. And I hope to see you in New York City soon. You know, one day after all this pandemic is over, we'll, we'll give it, get back together. Absolutely. With, with Absolutely. All right. Always good so to talk to you, Doc. Have a good time. one. Bye. All right. Bye bye. Oh.